Burning Books with Eric Beck-Rubin. Hello, and welcome to the Burning Books podcast, where we discuss, celebrate, and explore great books, very good books, books in which there's something to appreciate or admire, as well as books that are the opposite of all those things. Today, we're embarking on the first season of Pods. The season is called To Trilogy or Not to Trilogy. And we'll look at works that form parts of trilogies by Ford, Maddox Ford, Pat Barker, Elena Ferrante, Amitav Ghosh, Josip Novakovich, and Roddy Doyle. Today we're talking about Richard Ford's Frank Bascombe trilogy. Well, originally it was a trilogy. Recently, a fourth one has been added to the end. The first of them was the 1985 novel, The Sports Writer, which is reckoned by many to be a classic. So let's go. What was I thinking when I picked up this book? I know what I was thinking. I was thinking sports. Like a dumbass. Like a person who hadn't learned his lesson. See the previous episode on the novel, The Universal Baseball Association. I was also thinking, damn, this novel starts well. Because it does. My name is Frank Bascom. I'm a sports writer. And from that immediate and because it's so direct, intimate first sentence has begun a stunningly mellifluous first paragraph. For the past 14 years, I've lived here at 19 Hoving Road, Haddam, New Jersey, in a large two-door house bought when a book of short stories I wrote sold to a movie producer for a lot of money, and seemed to set my wife and me and our three children up for a good life. Direct, blunt, and therefore intimate, which draws the reader in, or at any rate, drew me in. This muscular but poetic, late poetic, too late for the poet's poetic tone, is the weave of the first two chapters of The Sports Writer. In those two chapters, heavy things happen. The narrator visits the grave of his firstborn son. He goes there early in the morning to meet up with his ex-wife. The death, the ex-wife, there's a wistfulness to the story that is appealing right off the bat. Even the redundancies which sneak up in the prose, using certain expressions like the good life again and again, speak of a kind of disarming honesty in the narrator. Just listen here to what that tone sounds like as Frank Bascombe relates the life he had lived with his wife and children, two of whom are still alive and well. I suppose our life was the generic one, as the poet said. X was a housewife and had babies, read books, played golf, and had friends. While I wrote about sports and went here and there collecting my stories, coming home to write them up, mooning around the house for days, taking the train to New York and back now and then. My ex-wife seemed to take the best possible attitude to my being a sports writer. She thought it was fine, or at least she said she did, and seemed happy. She thought she had married a young Sherwood Anderson with movie possibilities, but it didn't bother her that it didn't turn out that way, and certainly never bothered me. Simple, direct, frank. Frank Bascombe, yet illuminated with feather brushes of literary references that give the prose a husky luminosity. And in addition to all this, Easter weekend is coming, which means something's gotta be in the air, right? Right? For those two chapters, the sports writer was so good, it was almost perfect. And perhaps this is part of the larger point, because as soon as chapter three began, this book turned into an unremitting march, a slog. The wings were clipped. So, what happened between chapter 2 and 3? 
Well, the strange thing is, nothing happens, and nothing happens from chapter 3 onwards. And in case you as a reader don't get that point at first, about nothing happening but things going to shit anyways, it is hammered in at every opportunity. So what I'm saying is that Frank does things, he does all kinds of things, it's just the things he does seem to have little or no effect on his life, or equally importantly, his perception of his life, and that's what I mean when I say nothing happens. In those opening paragraphs of the novel, Frank tells us that he had been a writer of fiction, but now was merely a writer of facts, most of them unabashedly superficial. He's a sports writer, and he has learned to skim the surface of things. Beginning in chapter 3, he shows us what this actually means, this skimming of the surface of things. So while there is a little sex, a little drinking, a little travel in this book, nothing seems to leave any residue. And as Frank Bascombe goes on to describe all this nothingness in his everything is hunky-dory voice, the same one I had found so interesting but now was finding quite grating, because he goes on to describe this nothingness in this everything is okay kind of voice, I started to feel nauseous. So what I did is take a step back, back before the first chapter of the novel to the book's introduction, which was written by Ford himself in the Everyman's Library edition. In that introduction, Ford writes about the generally accepted notion that Frank Bascombe is an everyman. That may be how people read the book, Ford says, but that was not his intention. Okay, fine, that's the point of the introduction, but as I'm reading through it, what I'm noticing is a list of names that Ford drops. E.M. Forrester, Robert Frost, Robert Hughes, Paul Cezanne, Walter Benjamin. They're dropped casually into the flow of things, but the message of this introduction is clear. This novel, The Sports Writer, is a work of unabashed ambition. And now I'm intrigued. I'm living up here, the author is saying to the reader, with the big boys, and if you want to get what I'm saying, you'll have to join us. So, because I wasn't getting much pleasure from reading the book in the conventional fashion, I decided to try to make the climb. My first thought, The Sports Writer takes place mostly over Easter weekend. Easter in the American novel, I think to myself. My mind goes straight to one of my favorite novels, American or otherwise, of all time, The Winter of Our Discontent by John Steinbeck. The Winter of Our Discontent is a story more of the burial than the resurrection of its central character, Ethan Hawley. Definitely, Frank Bascombe is a character on a decline. So, I see something there. Next comes William Faulkner, whose novel The Sound of the Fury also centers on an Easter weekend. Like Faulkner, Richard Ford is born in Mississippi, and Frank Bascombe, who is described as similar, at least physically, to Richard Ford, also hails from Mississippi, in the sense that hail is something that pelts you from time to time. At the end of The Winter of Our Discontent, there is a blunted, ironic sense of hope. At the end of The Sound and Fury, hope is either crushed under a Pollyannish description of the healing power of religion, or hope is smothered by the black tar of the deluding power of religion. Pick your interpretation. In any case, these novels do not put much stock in the resurrection that follows Good Friday, and perhaps the sports writer is following in this line, updating it for the present, or the 1980s. So we have an idea of the sacrifice and failure to rise in 1980s America. Okay? But this interpretation wasn't getting me very far, and I was talking it over with Bernadette, explaining to her what I'd been telling you, stressing the fact that though things happen in this novel... There's a meeting with a girlfriend, a call to an editor, a fishing trip with the guys, an interview with an ex-athlete. Though all these things happen, it feels as though nothing is adding up to anything else. There was no overarching narrative. And Bernadette asked, Have you thought of Camus? 
and it was as if a light went on. The Outsider. Yes, I know you were referring to The Outsider. It seems like the sports writer is an American version of Camus' philosophy of existentialism. Okay. My pseudo-photographic memory led back to a detail I had picked out of the chronology in the Everyman's edition of the book. The fact that in 1996, Richard Ford was named Officer of the Order of Arts and Letters in France. And I started to think along these lines. Could Bernadette have, with one word, Camus, unlocked the entire thing? This was the watershed moment in reading The Sports Writer. So, to better understand The Sports Writer, let's go back to Camus' idea of existentialism. Camus began with the understanding and acceptance that we live in a cold and unfeeling universe. There is no God. There are no grand narratives or divine plans. There is no surtext to our actions. What we do, we do. It won't add up. It won't make for anything greater than itself. The problem is, we cannot altogether accept this unfeeling universe. We live for the grand narrative, for making meaning out of the actions of our daily, weekly, and yearly lives. This non-acceptance opens up an enduring gap between ourselves as individuals and the unfeeling universe. Camus called this enduring gap the absurd. The philosopher Henri Bergson had previously likened this gap to standing inside a phone booth and watching the world play out before you, which, if you can imagine it, if you are of an age to imagine it, is like watching a ballet of nonsense unspooling before your eyes. That's our world, a ballet of nonsense, all very seriously played out. And this is very much what reading the sports writer engenders, a sense of loneliness, of the absurdity between our struggle to make grand meaning out of actions and the universe sitting back and wiping away all grand meaning from those actions, a sense that what we say, think, and do doesn't add up to a hill of beans. There's something elegant in Frank Bascombe becoming a writer of sports. Sports is one of the great distractions, distracting us from the meaningless chasm that underlies our existence. As a dedicated fan of the Toronto Blue Jays, I can tell you this is 100% true. During baseball season, I barely ever think of the meaninglessness of human existence. So, good. I'm starting to understand Richard Ford's The Sports Writer via Albert Camus' The Outsider. Thing is, I fucking hated reading The Outsider. And I've read it twice, just to be sure. And I've read The Myth of Sisyphus, which is like the philosophical accompaniment to the novel, and I still hated The Outsider. I appreciated it, I saw the wisdom of it, I understood its power, still didn't like reading it. Parenthetically, I'm much more of a the-plague kind of guy. Give me swollen, blackened underarms, sweating, contagious zombies, the agonies of a city on lockdown any day over Meursault and all his whining about his mother and his lawyer and his priest and looking forward to being hanged. And that book, The Outsider, clocks in at a measly 117 pages in large print. The sports writer was over 340 pages, and the print was small. So once Bernadette turned me on to reading Ford through Camus, I could at least proceed in some kind of good conscience through the remaining pages of this highly self-impressed novel. At least, through the structure of existentialist philosophy, it started to make sense. For example, when Frank Bascombe says, for approximately the zillionth time, I worry less about the complexities of things, looking at life in more simple and literal ways. I better grasped why he insists on seeing things literally. 
looking for subtext or surtext would be missing the point. In the existentialist view, the literal is all there is. This is another reason why Frank Bascom has no difficulty describing himself, also repeatedly, as superficial. The thing about a book without a private life, without a subtext, or in this case, a book that carries little interest in subtext beyond illustrating Camus' version of existentialism in 1980s America, is that the text better be pretty damn good. And in the case of the sports writer, I did not find this to be the case. Often the text is clever, clever how Ford transposes mid-century European meaninglessness to late-century slash end-of-history meaninglessness in America, but cleverness gets tiring. It's a way of distancing the author slash narrator from the reader. And this book has a good head start on that anyways, what with Frank being stuck in his phone booth and me, the reader, being stuck in mine. And this led me back to all those readers of the Bascombe trilogy slash tetralogy of novels who take Frank Bascombe as an everyman and who somehow can't get enough of this guy. For them, Frank is real. It's there in his name. He's just a straight shooter. But to me, he's no more real than Meursault, the anti-hero of The Outsider, a terrifyingly unreal character, if there ever was one. Meursault is an instruction on how to conduct oneself in the cold and unfeeling universe, and to a large degree, Frank is the same. He's an argument, showing us how we would behave if we just gave up the ghost and realized life was worth nothing. But as Camus and many others before and since have pointed out, it's not in human nature to submit to the meaninglessness of our existence. We prefer to live by our stories. And for me, the sports writer reinforces this point. If this is a novel that illustrates the so-called real, I'd prefer to go back to make-believe. Thank you for listening. Next up on Burning Books will be a review of Amitav Ghosh's River of Smoke, the second novel of the epic 19th century opium trading collection called The Ibis Trilogy. Burning Books is part of the Litopia network of podcasts, and you can hear back episodes, subscribe, and reach me there via the email the show button, all by going to litopia.com, spelled the way it sounds, and following the link to Burning Books. On Twitter, there's at Burning Books Pod. And if you're on Facebook, I can be reached at facebook.com slash Eric Beck Rubin. My thanks to Hakan Ozgan for the music. There are several ways to thank someone. So let's start with the easiest. Teşekkürler. To Peter Cox, executive producer of the program. Right, okay, this one. What do you call a mobile home? Like a trailer? But yeah, yeah, I guess. Okay, yeah, trailer. I call them caravans. Welcome back to everyone, and go Jays. <laughs>